0: Well, thank you very much, and um, as we come to the close of this series, first I want to thank everyone involved, Dave and his staff. I want to thank you students. I had a great time here the last few days. And uh, faculty, I had a great time with the faculty. And I will give a good report back to the Staley Foundation, brother, if they ask me for it. (laughs) Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But... um, I've enjoyed my time here. Now, we have a few things that we need to cover. Otherwise, we would short-circuit Staley Foundation. So, and I wouldn't want to do that. So um, I'm going to go rather quickly on some of this. And if you think I am jumping to too many conclusions, then that's fine. We can talk a little later on. Or you can write me or call me or whatever you want to do. Basically, I've done the homework. I just the time, you know, the time isn't always there to do everything. That we need to do. Let's go to uh, Colossians chapter 2, one final time. And again, pay our respects to uh, to Paul. Incidentally, I personally believe that Paul was one of the greatest human beings that ever walked the face of the earth. Does that tell you where I'm coming from? Hmm? And has had... Um, as a human, uh, probably uh, the greatest influence. Let's look at verse two, where he says um, that your hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love. By the way, I notice that on this campus, I notice a lot of love on your campus, which I think is speaks great for your school. Unto all the riches of full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father, even of Christ. Look at this verse. In whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I can't believe that you're at a college and not be interested in that verse, okay? But uh, I could be wrong. Now notice what he says here. And I say this so that no professor at Stanford will beguile you with enticing words of his world view. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit. Join in beholding your order, and your are steadfast of your faith in Christ, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord. Walk in him. If our walk doesn't match our talk, we're losers. Most of you know that. We are to be rooted, there's our foundation, we are to be built up in Christ, Established in the what? Christian worldview faith. Did you catch that? Jotted in. It's a Colorado translation. As you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving, why? You have to ask yourself that question once in a while. Ask a why once in a while. Why? So that no professor at Harvard will spoil you through vain and deceitful philosophy after the traditions of Darwin and Marx, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. That's how up to date this passage is. This passage could have been written this morning, would not have been published in the New York Times, which is, for many, the mother of all truth. But, it could have been published in a lot of other places, and it would be right up to date. Now, the last time we left, I shared a letter with you from a mother in the wonderful state north of California, the state of oh, good, good Oregon. <laughs> I haven't told it's Oregon, but that's all right. And she was concerned because her daughter went off to that famous university up there and in four years turned her back on everything that she believed in for what reason? She believed what? Her professors. She believed her professors. And she accepted their philosophies. Now, friends, if we just would win here, we could call this a successful week. But sooner or later, many of you, especially, maybe not here at Masters, but when you get out of Masters, you're going to have to ask yourself some questions here. What philosophy? Well, so let me ask you a question. How many, seriously, in your heart, believe? That this young lady just took too many courses in mathematics. Had she just not taken that senior course, she would have been home free. Or at least she'd have been home. See, now she's not even home. Parents have lost her. How many think she took too many courses in mathematics? Let's see your hands. Just one too many courses in mathematics. That is interesting. How many think she took too many courses in electrical engineering? Isn't that interesting? How many think she took just too, too many courses in engineering, period? Anyone buy that one? Well, they teach engineering, right? They teach engineering. They have math courses up there. But no one here believes she took too many courses in math and engineering. Doesn't that tell you something right there? Math did not get her. And engineering did not get her. In fact, if you go to some of our universities, this uh, I shouldn't really say this, but I will and I'm leaving in a few hours but uh, if you speak to some of those engineering uh, professors on some of our major campuses, you can't believe what they say about some of the other portions of the university. Okay? No engineer worth anything will ever stand up before students and tell them everything is relative, for example. See what I'm saying? The bridge has got to stand. Yes, it's got to. And when that 18-wheeler goes over, it better not crumble, or he's out of job. He's out of job. How many think this young lady took too many courses in uh, social science and uh, humanities? Anyone buy on that one? Okay, you're getting pretty close, huh? How many don't really know what she took? How many don't care? <laughs> That's sad. But okay, okay, I can take it. She took something, right? Took something. Wasn't underwater basket weaving, I'll tell you that. That was my degree. I flunt that. I'll tell you what she did. She took too many courses in the social sciences and the humanities. That's where she lost. Just for your information. Don't want to shock anyone, but that's it. But let me tell you something else. She lost her Christian faith to another faith. That's the key. She lost her Christian faith to another faith. A faith that is being propagated at our universities today under the guise of academic freedom. Diversity and pluralism. Oh, you hear that word once, you hear it a million times. Pluralism. Uh, Kids, none of you believe that, I hope. That's just for the hoi polloi to keep them happy. And keep the taxpayers' money coming. These are not institutions of pluralism and diversity. There's more discussion at the Rotary Club than in some of our universities today. And when they have the great debates, it's always among themselves. Now, I've come to a few conclusions. I've just given you one. I believe that she lost her faith to another faith. I only believe that's the way you can do it. I don't believe you can lose your faith to anything else but another faith. Secondly, I have come to the conclusion that there's a name to that faith. I'm going to give it to you this morning, and then I'm going to prove it with three sources. A Christian source, a non-Christian source, a black source, and a Jewish source. How's that for diversity? You like that? Yes. Good. No? The name of the faith. You've got to have a name to it, friends. There is a name to that faith. There is a name to the faith of the philosophy that is being propagated by these professors at our universities. The name of the faith is secular humanism. That's the name of the faith. And I'm arguing that secular humanism is a religious worldview. I'm even arguing more than that. I don't have time to get into all the argument, but I'm even arguing that it's the only worldview allowed in a vast majority of our public education today. A vast majority. Basically, from kindergarten through graduate school. That's a whole lot of education. And that if you took a child and put him in kindergarten and looked at him 12, 15, or 18 years later and pulled him out, and put him up here and interviewed him, it would be so simple. If he had no outside source of information, none. No peer pressure, no anything from his parents, nothing from his church or Sunday school. If he just gave him rock bottom information from his kindergarten through graduate school level, education, you could interview him right here and you could draw a line right underneath him. And you wouldn't have to be a rocket scientist to figure it out either. He would be a secular humanist. Why? It's the only position allowed. It's the only position allowed. And in all the key major ten areas, and I hope to get to a few of those areas, I even brought my little chart here. Where's my charter? Did he leave me? I'll find another one. Let's go to our sources. My first source, Christian, James C. Dobson, wrote a very important book, Hopefully some of you are going to read this book before too long. It's called Children at Risk. could be entitled College Students at Risk, too. (laughs) Because our college students are at risk as well. In fact, right now, friends, you're at risk from kindergarten through graduate school. Why don't we just admit it? You're at risk. Dr. Dobson says on page 19, nothing short of a great civil war of values rages today throughout North America. He could have said throughout Western civilization. Because this is the battle, friends. This is the intellectual, spiritual battle of the ages going on right in front of us. And 90% of the Christians are missing the whole thing. As they're watching, I love Lucy, and have Gun will travel, and whatever else they watch. Generally speaking, the cartoons at three in the afternoon. Or General Hospital, I know some more graduate schools. Two sides with vastly differing Listen to the expressions here. He's got the three major points. Two sides with vastly differing and incompatible world views are locked in a bitter conflict that permeates, listen to this, every level of society. Are you sure, Dr. Dobson? I don't see it. You say every level. I think you're being a bit extremo. No. He's absolutely correct. Just because you don't see it, friends, that doesn't mean it's not there. It just means you're blind. Bloody battles are being fought on a thousand fronts. If you don't know that, friends, you don't know what's going on in your country today. You don't know what's going on. These battles are being fought around the clock. Open any daily newspaper. Just listen to what he says. Open any daily newspaper and you will find accounts of these battles. He calls it Gettysburg, Waterloo, Normandy, or Stalingrad. <laughs> instead, But here's the key. And here's why we don't see it. Instead of fighting for military conquest, instead of fighting for territory, the battle is for the hearts and minds of the people. That's why we don't see it. It is a war over ideas. Three key words in just a little section here. Worldview, values, and ideas. Friends, that's the struggle. And let me tell you something else. Whoever wins that struggle wins the war. In fact, listen to what Dr. Dobson says. He says, I believe a winner will emerge and the loser will fade from memory. And for now, the outcome is very much in doubt. You mean we could lose? Yes. You want to hear the sad fact? We are losing. Page 22. He spots it right on the button. The secular humanist system of values now has become the predominant way of thinking in our society. It has outstripped Judeo-Christian precepts or ideas or values or worldview. And where has it outstripped us? He mentions them, friends. Listen to them. And these are all the levels of society. The universities, anyone doubt that? You can't doubt it, friends. In fact, there's a good reason why you're here at Master's College. I can nearly guarantee that. If you don't know, call your parents. They can probably give you a good idea, okay? In our universities, in the news media. Hmm? Meaning when you turn on ABC and NBC and CBS and CNN and STP, that all these things are coming at you from a little slant? Yeah in the entertainment industry that's Hollywood and and New York you're just a stone's throw from Hollywood in the judiciary federal bureaucracy business medicine law psychology sociology the arts public schools and congress he hasn't missed a whole lot has he? (laughs) Hasn't missed a whole lot, and you know what? I believe he's absolutely correct, and I think he's identified it. And he calls it secular humanism. That's my Christian source, non-Christian source. I have a book. I have a few pages here from a book entitled "The Way Things Ought to Be." Some of you have read this book. I think most of you should read this book. The author is Rush H. Limbaugh III, cleverly referred to as Rush. I'm on page 261. And by the way, you know what my attitude is here? If Rush knows all this, why don't we know it? If he knows it, we should know it. Because I'm not even arguing that he's coming at this from a Christian source. But he sees it. He says, there is an anti-American credo in our society. It abhors American political and governmental institutions and this nation's capitalistic economy. Their value system is at war with Judeo-Christian tradition upon which this country was founded. And it's centered in secular humanism. Page 261. I go to page 302. This is a dynamite quote. Americans are growing weary of supporting a public education system which bans God. By the way, what did, when, what year did we ban God? I dare say I mean, most Christians don't even know that. We banned God in 1987, Aguilar versus Edwards decision. We banned the we banned prayer in '62. When I say we, I mean the United States Supreme Court, not we we. Okay. We banned prayer in 62, we banned the Bible in 63. We banned the Ten Commandments in 1980, and we banned God in 1987. Does that tell you a direction that you're heading into? By the way, in 1972 we said yes to abortion, and in 1996, this very year, the Supreme Court, I think, will say yes to homosexuality. The Amendment 2 decision will be made this year in June. Rush says, we have a system out there that bans God, encourages licentiousness. Where do you think he found that word? That's from the King James Version of the Bible. We don't use it anymore because we, A, we can't spell it. B, we don't know what it means. <laughs> Decries Western civilization. Yes, it does, friends. It's called multiculturalism. Indicts American tradition, promotes cultural disharmony, and serves as a breeding ground for new little liberals. Right on the button. You put him in a kindergarten, take him out of graduate school, you have a new little liberal. What'd you have? A new little liberal. Second source. Third source, black. By the way, he's not too far from here. He teaches at Stanford University in the Hoover Institute there. Thomas Sowell, S-O-W-E-L-L. And if you're black, this should be one of your heroes. Thomas Sowell wrote a book called Inside American Education. Only Thomas Sowell could have written it. Only Thomas Sowell could have written this book. This book could not have been written by hardly anyone else in this country. And he shows how our higher educational system is destroying blacks, for one thing. He's got a whole section on that. Very well done. And how they do it, how they do it, they could care less about blacks. They're just looking for the percentage of blacks in the university. They don't care where they get them from, and if they flunk them in a year, that's fine. It's still, they're on their record. Who cares if they don't graduate? And by the way, most of them don't because they're not in their—they're not in the right spot. And does he go after this? But that's not my subject this morning. That's next year. Page fifty-nine. While the organized secular humanist movement might seem to be a small fringe group. Its impact on education is out of all proportion to itself. I'll say that right off back. <laughs> that's that is that's not that's a that's an understatement of the quarter century. How many secular humanists are there in this country? 7.1 million. Okay? Friends, just listen to this. There are seven point one million secular humanists in America. How do I know that? Isaac Asimov told me. He wrote it. I didn't make up the figure, he said it. I used to get his appeal letters, then they stopped. He died, that's why they stopped. His first statement I remember, I'm his friend, he wrote me, dear friend, I, he said, assume that there are about 7.1 million of us in this country. That's interesting. 7.1 million. How many Christians are there in this country? We had a Barna-Gallup poll a few years ago, the largest religious poll of all times. 113,000 Americans polled in this poll. And you know how many claim the name of Christ in this country? 86.5% of the American people name the name of Christ in this country. 7.1% are humanists. 86.5% claim to be Christian of some type or other. And who runs the whole program? Who runs the whole program? Fourth, Jewish source. By the way, one of the finest Jewish publications in this country. It's one of my favorite reads every month. tell the truth, it's nearly my favorite read, if I'm really honest with you. It is one of the best well-written publications in America today. It's called Commentary Magazine. Commentary Magazine. I'm sure you have it in your library here. I'm in August of 1991 with a fantastic article by Irving Kristol. Now, what's interesting about this article is that Irving Kristol is worried about the same thing I'm worried about, but he's worried about it from his Jewish position. And I'm worried about it from our Christian position. He's worried that Jews are going to the universities and losing their faith. That's what he's worried about. Five pages on this subject, by the way. I could have written it. I could have written it. I didn't have to hardly change a word in the whole thing. And he says, they are losing their faith to another faith. He he spots that, too. They are losing their faith to another faith. He says, and the amazing thing is, this other faith has a name. The name is secular humanism. August 91, pages 22 and following. Read it carefully. Read it carefully, my friends. I'm going to give you a very sad statistic. As far as I know, this statistic is absolutely true, and if anything, it's probably a little under. But a study was taken over here at UCLA a few years ago. In fact, uh, it was a PhD uh, paper thesis by uh, Gary Railsback, who was a Christian. And he was wondering how many evangelicals come into the university claim to be evangelicals in their freshman year, and then what do they look like four years later when they leave? And uh, he had this thing set up. It was a rather interesting study. He had it set up, and he found, friends, that from the freshman year to the senior year, 50% of all evangelical Christians throw their faith to the four winds within just a four-year period of time. How do they do this? I mean, if a general came back and said, I lost half my troops, what would you say about the general? You can tell me. You wouldn't march under him, or try not to, right? Yes. We lost half the troops? We're losing half our Christian brothers and sisters, friends. Is it necessary? Well, my argument is it is not necessary. What's the problem? They're not prepared. They don't understand. They lack knowledge in a very strategic figure. When they hear the word religion and they hear the word faith, they immediately think of some cult. I wouldn't have any trouble convincing you that Jehovah's Witnesses uh, is a faith or that Christian science is a faith. Or that some of our other more exotic uh, uh, groups out there are religious cults. I wouldn't have any trouble doing that. But isn't it amazing when I try to convince someone that secular humanism is a religious worldview? I might as well just forget the whole thing. I can literally walk right through the uh, right through the door and leave. No one cares. I would get more responsive. I said, you know, there's a guru up here with 150 members in this New York third third floor apartment. Oh, really? Well, boy, oh boy, a, a guru. Oh, we better get excited about that, brother. I said, well, don't get too excited. He just jumped out. He told his followers he'd be right back. He just jumped out and broke his neck on the pavement and forget about it. He's only down to 75 followers right now. Oh, that's terrible. Well, that that guy's religious. He's a religious nut. (laughs) Yes, and he's influencing 75 to 100 people. And then I say, hey, what about the religion of secular humanism that influences 26 million young people every day? Anyone concerned about that? No. No. Okay, I'm going to quickly. I I'm I'm going to quickly do in just a few minutes what you just need to hear, and then if you're interested, I have the proof right here in my latest book called "Clergy in the Classroom." I have 45 exhibits to prove what I'm about to tell you right now. I want to prove to you rather quickly that secular humanism, and I haven't even really defined it to a great extent. I have it on this chart here, but we're not going to even have time to show the chart. Uh, and I've done that work in this book here, okay? That's in this book. For those of you that are thinking I'm skipping too much, that's there. But it's mo- it's quite an experience. Um, that is not as important right now as what I have to share with you because you need to hear this point. I need to prove to you beyond a shadow of a doubt that secular humanism is a religious worldview. And let me, as I say, I have, I have this in 45 different points, but I'm just going to give you three or four of the key points. Is that fair enough for this morning? And then you start mulling this thing over, friends, and then you'll begin to realize why we are losing in all of these areas. I want to just use a couple of examples. One is 1929. In 1929, there was the first humanist church founded in New York City. In fact, it was founded on September 29, 1929. It was founded by an individual named Charles Francis Potter. Charles Potter knows all about churches. Notice I said he founded the first humanist church in New York City. But he knows all about churches But because because before he founded the humanist church, he was a Baptist preacher for 11 years. And then he quit the Baptist denomination and he became a Unitarian preacher for 11 years. And then he quit the Unitarian ministry and he started the first humanist church of New York City. That was in 1929. In 1930, he wrote a book about it, published by Simon & Schuster, called Humanism a New Religion. Humanism a New Religion. Baptist preacher, Unitarian preacher, humanist church, humanism a new religion, I have come to the conclusion that humanism is a religion. The Humanist Manifesto, 1933, written by Roy Wood Sellers, S-E-L-L-A-R-S, professor of philosophy, University of Michigan, who a, a few years earlier than that wrote another book called Religion Comes of Age. Religion Comes of Age arguing that Christianity was on its way out, there is a new religion on the horizon, and this is the religion of humanism. Roy Wood who penned Humanist Manifesto 1 in 1933. I'm not going through the manifesto, but the preface is interesting because the preface is written by Paul Kurtz, who is the top humanist in our country today. And Paul says very clearly, humanism is a philosophical, religious, and moral point of view religious point of view in 1934 John Dewey penned a book that has influenced everyone in this room it's called a common faith a common faith John Dewey the most influential person of this century and what's nice about this book is it's a Yale University paperback and you see all Yale University paperbacks always tell you on the back the content of the book and it's reference It says religion. Religion. Well, you don't have to guess, because John himself says on page 87, quote, here are all the elements for a religious faith. Here. Here. The book are all the elements for a religious faith. And we still are trying to figure out if humanism is a religion or no. I go to Free Inquiry Magazine. This is their quarterly publication. Uh, This is edited by Paul Kurtz. In fact, the article that I'm referring to is by Paul Kurtz, K-U-R-T-Z. I'm on page 5 for Winter 86-87, where Paul asks the question, but is secular humanism a religion? That's his question. His answer, the organized humanist movement in America is put in a quandary. For the fellowship of religious humanists, the American Ethical Union, and the Society for Humanistic Judaism, Consider themselves to be religious. Even the American Humanist Association has a religious tax exemption. Here's the big daddy of them all, friends. The big daddy of them all, the American Humanist Association, has a religious tax exemption. And now I go to the mother of all truth. The Harvard University Gazette. The date is July 9th, 1993. By the way, this is all in this book of mine. I have photos. I even got permission from the Harvard Gazette to reproduce the whole thing. They were happy. They were happy. Someone even paid attention, I guess. Front page article on the campus newspaper at Harvard University. Humanist chaplain serves at Harvard University. Humanist chaplain. It's a very interesting article. Former Roman Catholic Jesuit priest who left the priesthood for two reasons. Darwin's theory of evolution and homosexuality. And then I'm told on page 10, quote, when first year students voluntarily indicate their religious affiliations during registration each year, less than 200 check off humanism as their religion. I wouldn't care if only 20 checked it off, would you? What's it telling us? They're a religion. They're a religion. I hope some of you are starting to think this thing through now. Oh, wait, wait a minute. They can't be a religion. If they were a religion, they shouldn't be in the schools. Ooh, ooh, ooh. You're getting close. See? getting close but listen to this moreover only a fraction of those actually seek his guidance (laughs) that's good for us that may be because humanist students do not relate to their religious figures as other students besides he says I'm not as needed why is he not as needed because he says not only do these students require less guidance they are being constantly reinforced in their humanist beliefs in the classroom. I nearly rest my case. Except one of our students, one of our summer kids, I don't don't know if he's at Harvard or Duke, I forget where, but uh, either he's there or his friends there at Harvard this year, sent me their religious life at Harvard, 94, 95. This is not in my book because this came out after clergy in the classroom came off the press. It'll be in the next edition. Here is religion at Harvard, 1994-95. And what groups are there? The Baha'i group is there. The Baptist group are there. Or the Baptist group. The American Baptist is there. The conservative Baptist. The Southern Baptist. The Buddhists are there. Campus Crusade for Christ is at Harvard. The Catholic Student Center is at Harvard. Christian Science is at Harvard. The Mormons are there. The Episcopals are there. The Jewish are there. Humanists are there right here now why out of all these groups is this one group the only group allowed in our public schools would you tell me that friends that's that's the question of the hour I've never had an answer yet I've debated this all over the country no one has ever answered this the only one that's come close to even ask the question in a real serious way some years ago and I think I have that here, yes, I do have that here, would you believe I can find it, uh, was William Jennings Bryan. In the, in the late 20s and early 30s, William Jennings Bryan was saying, wait a minute, what's going on here? If you're going to allow teachers in the classroom to blast Christianity and the Bible and Christ... At taxpayers' expense, then we would uh, we need to have the other side come in at taxpayers' expense to answer those attacks. That was back in the late twenties and early thirties. By the way, this is found in a wonderful book. Uh, Dave has it in his uh, in his um, office. It's called The Soul of the American University by George Marsden. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. He says if schools uh, supported by taxation are to remain neutral. That's one thing, he says. But if the Bible cannot be defended in these schools, it should not be attacked in these schools. I mean, if we can't defend something, then it should not be allowed to be uh, attacked, especially when the taxpayers are paying for it. Now, friends, that is the heart of the issue. That is the heart of the issue. But it's not the end of the matter. The end of the matter, and I only have five minutes, the end of the matter is... Where do we fit in on this whole scheme of things? Now, I need some help. Come on. Let me tell you what we have done. You can all see this, I'm sure, over there, right? <laughs> Just, I have to show you something anyway. You know, I'm supposed to always bring some examples. This is supposed to be good pedagogy. Um, and besides, if you can't see it, it doesn't make a difference. But it's here, you can come up and see it later. What we have done is we have analyzed the secular humanist worldview in 10 categories. The categories are theology, philosophy, ethics, biology, psychology, sociology, law, politics, economics, and history. Then we analyzed their blood brothers, the Marxist humanist position. By the way, you'd be surprised how similar they are in so many ways. Then we've analyzed the cosmic humanist position. This is an uh, an appendix in the textbook. And then we close off with a defense of the Christian position in these same ten categories. What's the problem, you say? The problem is we can't convince Christians they have a worldview. That's the problem. We can't even convince the evangelical community that they have a worldview worth defending and that it stands in total opposition to the humanist positions. We can't convince even our own brethren on this point. And that is going to be my challenge here today. Now, quickly, in just a few minutes here, I want you to jot down, we're not going to look at them all, but I want you to jot down, friends, three passages very quickly, and then in this next week, would you promise me after I'm gone, after I'm gone, and all the all the roar is over, I want you to look at First Chronicles twelve thirty-two. How many know what that verse says already? Does that ring a? You know it's in the Bible, right? Old or New Testament? Oh, good. Ooh, you see, Old Testament. Yes, First Chronicles twelve thirty-two. Jot down First Timothy six twenty. That is a powerful, powerful passage. And we've overlooked that many times. And then put down 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. Now, 1 Chronicles says that the tribe of Issachar was the leading tribe of Israel for one reason. What was it? It's the smallest tribe, by the way. It says they only had 200 men. All the rest had thousands, 120,000 for some of the tribes, men ready for battle. Here was a tribe with only 200. And most of us would have said, well, throw that tribe away. We don't need it. The truth is, friends, if you read the verse, you'll know why it was very necessary. Why was this a strategic tribe? A, they understood the times in which they lived. B, they knew what Israel ought to do. Friends, that's what I'm asking you. Why don't you make it a point to understand the times in which you live and then know what you ought to do. That should not be such a difficult thing. Uh, In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul tells us to beware of antithetical philosophies. This is an interesting thing. The word antithesis is the Greek word. It's the second portion of the Hegel dialectic. And Paul warns us about it. Because you see, in the scriptures, your yea is to be yea, and your nay is to, be, is to be nay. Okay? And not the dialectic where there is no truth. And then, let me close with Second Corinthians 10, verse 5, because I believe this is part of our Christian responsibility. You are to, here's 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, you are to cast down imaginations, that's a very poor translation, by the way, but you, it literally in the Greek is, you are to overthrow the arguments of those who say there is no God. Isn't that interesting? What's the first declaration out of a humanist's mouth? There is no God. That's the very first declaration of their theology. Paul says we are to overthrow those arguments, and he says we are to bring every idea, every thought into captivity, and we are to make it obedient to Jesus Christ. Friends, that is a lifelong quest. You won't do that. You don't this is not a devotional verse for one day. <laughs> and then you say, Oh, well, I've done my devotions, brother. And that no 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 no. That verse is the rest of your life. Because every generation has its opposition, and you can nearly argue it's nearly every five and ten years right now. Every five or ten years there's a new thing coming down the highway but then it's going to take you to be out there and say, oh, I can tell you right now where that thing is. Look at the ideas behind that. We are now in the 20th century. We're slowly coming to the end. We're heading for the 21st. Is that correct? The 20th century, my friends, has been the bloodiest century of all centuries. 176 to 326 million people have died this century thanks to their own governments to a great extent. The bloodiest of all centuries is the century you're in right now. Why? Because of the ideas of the 19th century. That's why. They died, you say, well, they died by bullets. No, 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 no. They died by what? Ideas. They died by ideas long before they were shot by the bullet. Now, friends, we need to enter into this battle. That's what I'm telling you right now. We desperately need you in this battle. Just don't think this is something intellectual and you can walk out of here and say, Ah, it's too intellectual for me. I'm going back to the cartoons. No, 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 no. No, no. That is not where you are to be. We are in this for keeps. We are in this because this is our Christian responsibility. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5 tells me so. Let's stand and be dismissed with prayer. Lord, I'm so thankful for this opportunity to be here this, uh, this week, these past few days. And my heart's uh, desire right now, Lord, is that you would just use each one of these young people in a special way to become part of this great, great battle. A battle for the hearts and minds of the people of this country with eternal consequences, Lord. And I pray that even though I might not have given forth the best case, that you would just uh, convict some here, Father, to show them don't waste your life. Don't throw your life away. Become part of what you would have us to be as your children. And Lord, I do pray your blessing upon this school. Pray your blessing upon its administration, faculty, supporters. Thank you for it, Lord, and pray that you would just continue to uh, bless it in a special way. And that together we might glorify you. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.